I'm going to ask you and invite you to open with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 was thinking about where to begin this new year and was wanting to kind of um, go in a direction where we have been in the Word of God throughout the last couple of, of weeks. So in our Bible reading plan, our options were either the book of Revelation or Song of Solomon. And uh, so because I didn't want to necessarily have the birds and the bees talk today, um, on New Year's I decided the book of Revelation and then worked our way back to kind of where we were um, last week looking at this picture of God with us, that there will never be a time where we cannot say that Christ is with us. He is Emmanuel. But I wanted to spend some time today just looking at who it is that's with us. And this morning we come to one of the most beautiful descriptions of Christ that has ever been written, only equal to the description of Christ in Revelation 19 that John gives us. But I was thinking, what better way to begin a new year than to place our eyes upon the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world? And as we gaze on the Lamb, my prayer to you, for us this morning is that if you are lost today, as you look to Christ, you'll be found. If you're weak today, as you look upon Christ, that you will find strength. If you're hurting today, as you look upon Christ, that you will be comforted. If you're confused today, that as you look upon Christ, you will find clarity in Him. And if you are desiring sin today, as you look upon Christ, I pray that you will desire instead the Savior, to, to follow Him, to seek Him. And let me begin by saying that this, this beautiful vision of Christ that we are about to read and we're about to unpack is not a future vision of Christ. It's a present vision of Christ, meaning this is, this is not a picture that says this is what Jesus will be like. This is a picture that says this is what Jesus is like now. This is who he is right now. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, this is who he forever will be. And there's going to be some amazing beauty in what we are about to see today. Amazing beauty in who Christ is to us. I love the words of Sam Storms. And speaking about the beauty of God, he says, The experience of God the encounter of the human soul with divine beauty is more than merely enjoyable. It is profoundly transforming. We do not simply behold beauty. Beauty takes hold of us and challenges the allegiance of our hearts. Then it says, beauty has power to dislodge from our hearts the grip of moral and spiritual ugliness. The soul's engagement with beauty elicits love and forges in us a new affection that no earthly power can overcome. So today, that's my prayer. As we look upon the glory of Christ, as we look at this beautiful picture of who Christ is, that this picture of Him will dislodge from our hearts any moral or spiritual ugliness that exists there. And instead, that our hearts will be captured by love and by new affections for this, who we call our our Savior. So this morning, Revelation chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 9 through 20. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. When you get there, let me hear you say, and it says this, beginning at verse 1, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud 
voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and Tardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. As we come before you, God, beholding your glory in the face of Christ and this beautiful picture of Christ, we pray today, God, that we would be completely overwhelmed by the beauty that we behold in you. God, that you would, God, grip our hearts with this beauty, change our affections, God, with this beauty, Lord. I just pray, God, that whatever it is today, that we would understand, God, that every need, every it, whatever it is, is completed and the answer is found in you. Today, God, we just look to you. We look away from ourselves. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Show us today what we need to see. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So let me just think, let's just walk you through this. The book of Revelation. When we think about the book of Revelation, these churches, um, seven churches that was being written to, we're talking about difficult circumstances that were being faced by first century Christians. Christians in this first century were being arrested for their faith. They were being um, losing their, their livelihood for their faith. They were being beheaded for their faith. And they were being thrown to lions for their faith. The picture of Christian life in the first century church was families who were being arrested because they were Christians, thrown into a Roman Colosseum, and the parents had to say, well, here comes a lion. If we give them our children first and let the lions eat our children, then the lions would play with us because the they knew this, that once a lion was full, then it played with its prey. So the parents would throw their children and watch this lion devour their children and then be absolutely the, the target of, of playfulness as the lion would just rip um, these Christians apart. So this is what was being faced by first century Christians. There was a, a letter called the Letter of Dognatus. It was the work of an unknown author written in A.D. 130. And it describes what Christians were like to Romans. So if Romans needed to know what Christians were like, this was the description. It says this of Christians. They dwell in their own countries simply as sojourners. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. 
They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They are put to death, but will be restored to life. They are poor, yet they make everyone else rich. They possess few things, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, but in their very dishonor they are glorified. And those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. So this is the picture of the, the first century church and beyond. This is a picture of the church of Christ. And could it be, could it be that the reason the early Christians could be described this way is because they, like Peter and John and, and Acts 4, had been with Jesus? Could it be that they were beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ? And because of that, they were being rejected by the world that they lived in. May it be said of us that we are beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ this morning. So what I want us to do is I want us to unpack three amazing truths concerning the triumphant one, concerning the um, indescribable one, the triumph of the Lamb. Three truths that I pray will, will lead us from this place today into a new year, ready to see what God has in store for us. So the, the first truth I want us to unpack is this. Christ comforts his people in great tribulation. Christ comforts his people in great tribulation. When you look at verse 9, John is writing here and he says, I'm your brother and your partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, patient endurance that are in Jesus. And he says this, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And let me just tell you what that doesn't mean. I'm going to tell you in a second what that does mean. It doesn't mean that because he was a Christian, he won a vacation on this island. And so he went to this tropical island and he was there um, drinking drinks with umbrellas in it, just thanking God for um, the, what he had won because of the testimony of Jesus Christ and because of the word of God. No, as I just said, believers were suffering for Christ. They were not suffering because of disobedience to Christ. They were suffering because of their obedience to him. And what is clear to us from the first century church is that suffering did not stop when someone became a Christian. Oftentimes, that's where suffering began. It began when someone um, became a Christian, when someone confessed Christ. So the picture is here John is. He's on this island called Patmos. Remember, this is not a Caribbean island. This is an island that was known for its rock quarries. When um, Romans would arrest people, they would send them to this island. And what they would do is they would have to break up rocks and then carry them to, to ships. So all day long, this is what they were doing. They were breaking up rocks, carrying these rocks, and, and hauling these rocks out. So all day long, this is where um, the Romans would send their prisoners. So John is on this island where prisoners would go, and he is there, as he said, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And this is where we see that there is a, a price to be paid for walking with Jesus. There's a price to be paid for confessing Jesus. You want to live a life where nobody ever messes with you, then never talk about Jesus. You want to live a life where you fit in with the world, then never take on the tough sayings of Christ. Never do it. If you want to live a life where you just cruise on through, then stay away from Christ. Stay away from him. But here the picture is, every time, four times we see this phrase, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, four times in the book of Revelation, and every time we see it, it's talking about Christians being persecuted for, um, for their faith. So we see this over and over again. And so John is making it very clear that he's a prisoner, but his only crime is unshakable loyalty to 
Christ. This is only crime. Yet the benefits for him because of this were out of this world. On this island, he had a revelation from Christ. Or think about it this way. Think about the benefits of tribulation or the benefits of difficulty this way. Moses wrote the Torah when he was in the wilderness. David wrote many of the Psalms when he was in despair, being chased for his life, whether by King Saul or by his, his son. Ezekiel wrote his book when he was in exile. Uh, Peter wrote two of his letters shortly before he was martyred. And John wrote this amazing revelation from Christ as he was suffering for Christ. And this is where we see, and please don't miss this this morning, it is possible to gain the greatest knowledge of God through the deepest suffering for him. Let me say it again. It's possible and most likely that we gain our greatest knowledge of God when we walk through our deepest sufferings for him. Therefore, the, whatever tribulation or sufferings or afflictions that are going on in your life right now in this season, let me say this, they're not meaningless. They're not meaningless. They have a meaning to them. John Piper says this, not only is your affliction momentary, it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your misery and the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of it. Whether cancer or criticism, whether slander or sickness, hear this, it is not meaningless. It is doing something. These things are doing something in our lives. And not only that, let me say this, not only that, as we walk through this in obedience to Christ, we are being guaranteed the knowledge and the comfort of someone. As we walk through any affliction for the sake of being a child of God, it guarantees, we are being guaranteed not only the, the knowledge of Christ, but comfort of Christ. Comfort that he gives. So Christ comforts his people in great tribulation. Then secondly, the second truth, I'm going to fly through this one. Second truth is this, Christ gives his people a glorious revelation. So how do we endure? How do we endure when we live in a world that punishes Christians? How do we endure when we live in a world that um, loves for us to talk about God as long as we don't mention Christ? How do we live in that world? And John says we live in that world through the power of the indescribable Christ, or the power that Christ gives to us. So here what happens is John is given a glorious revelation of Jesus. Now what I want to do is I want to quickly unpack seven pictures of Christ from this revelation. Now I, I could without a doubt do way more than seven, but seven is a number of completeness all the way throughout this book. So seven just sounds like a good uh, number today. So seven pictures of Christ in reference to the church. And I love this. For when John turns to look at this voice, he sees Christ in the middle of seven lampstands. Or, to put it in a different way, he sees Christ standing in the middle of his church. And this is a great encouragement for us today because it shows us that Christ is, as we talked about last week, Christ is with his people. He is with his people. He's with us today. And John sees the unimaginable. He sees the indescribable Christ. One pastor put it this way, imagine you've got a pen and paper and someone says to you, write down what you see in the Grand Canyon. 
You would look at the Grand Canyon, you would look at the paper, you would look at your pen, and you would think there is no way that I can put on this piece of paper with this pen the grandeur that's in front of me. And in a much greater way, feel the magnitude of John's task to put on paper what is right in front of him, the glory of God in the face of Christ. So let me real quick unpack seven pictures. Number one, he is reigning in power over his church. He's reigning in power over his church. In verse 12 and 13, John sees these seven lampstands, golden lampstands, which is a church, and then in the midst of them, one like the Son of Man. And the, the term the Son of Man it was Jesus' favorite description for himself all throughout the Gospels. It speaks of his humanity. It speaks of his authority. You can see this in, in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, this, this picture. But when John says, I see one like the Son of Man, what he is, is saying is, I see one who has all authority, who has everlasting dominion who no one can stand against. And John sees this one standing in the midst of his church, not just reigning over his church, but empowering his church. Think about Christ in this way. Christ's rule over us is not an, oppre uh, and not an oppressive rule. Christ's rule over us does not leave us downcast. His rule over us does not leave us without hope. His rule over us is a gracious rule that gives power in our lives, that gives us hope, that gives us strength, that gives us everything that we need. Therefore, it's a good thing that he is reigning in power over his church. But then secondly, you see there, he is interceding with passion for his church. He's interceding with passion for his church. So the next thing that John sees in verse 13 was a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now this is the first time this picture is given in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, every time we read about a robe and a golden sash, it almost always refers to the high priest. So the picture is that Jesus is the sympathetic high priest for us. Or as Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Or as Hebrews 7.25 says, that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. And then it says this, for he lives to intercede for us. I love the words of Robert Murray McShane. It says this, he said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. Christ is praying for me. He lives to pray for me. Okay, my preaching is way better than your amening right now. Just, 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 so, just so you know, you guys stink right now. This is a whole lot better than that. So let, let's get in gear. I don't know what attention is going on, but we have a Savior who is praying for us. He's praying for us. Don't you say, um, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. That means everything to us. He's sympathizing with us. He's praying for us. He knows the mind and the heart of God, and he's praying for us. He's interceding with passion for us. Then third, the third picture is he is holy and the purifier of the church. So we get to verses 14 and 15 and we see Christ and we see his hair is white as snow. We see his eyes are like a flame of fire. And some people try to say, oh, isn't that sweet? Jesus, his eyes are like fire. That means he's in love with us. No, 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 no. No, this is the picture of his eyes are like fire because his, 
His fury and his wrath are about to be poured out upon unbelievers. So not the, the good little picture of he's just so passionately in love with us. He is, but this is a different picture. But we see this and then his feet like bronze. And the point is this. The point is that Christ is pure and he's eternal. The picture of his his white hair shows his purity. It shows his, his age of being absolutely eternal. His eyes, like a flame of fire, see every part of us. We can hide nothing from him. And his feet, like bronze, refined in the fire, show his purity and show his desire for us. Hear this. You know what God desires, what Christ desires of his church? Let me say this. He desires purity. Which makes no sense when you think about most pastors today who say, well, God hasn't called me to talk about sin. What? Christ's desire is a pure church. How can we speak about purity if we ignore sin? In fact, let me tell you what Ephesians 5.27 says about Christ. It says, so that he, meaning Jesus, might present the church, which is us, to himself in splendor, without sort or spot, excuse me, or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, that's us, the church, might be holy and without blemish. This is the work of Christ. He is holy and he wants to purify us. And then number four, he is communicating loudly to his church. Don't miss this. From his mouth, his voice was like the roar of many waters. I think about back a couple of years ago, myself and Larry went to Toronto um, in March. Uh, what a great idea that was, except the highest it got was 20 degrees, and it was insane. And we went, um, we went to Niagara Falls, and it was frozen, just almost frozen over, but just a little bit of water that was coming, and it was snowing, and it was terrible. But here we are outside taking pictures like this, and I'm, Larry, get one of me quick, hurry. And he's doing the same, but the, this water's coming you know what you don't you know what you don't do right at the the base there of Niagara Falls you don't have a great conversation with somebody you don't have this great in-depth conversation all you can hear is the sound of many waters and the picture is this the picture is this we have a God who is speaking to his church with undeniable authority can't miss his voice only way we miss his voice is by just choosing to be disobedient to his voice or try to ignore his voice or push it away. But here's the point. 2,000 years removed from this picture, it's still very clear that the only source of authority for the church is the word of God. You know what we've been taught? We've been taught that, well, if you've never experienced it, then you can't speak to it. So, Pastor, you ha you've never had a drug addiction, so you can't speak to me about my drug addiction. Or you've never been addicted to this, so you can't speak towards it. You know what that is? That's a lie that's been given to us by Satan that because I haven't walked through it, I can't talk to you about it. But here's the beautiful thing. My authority is not based on my experience. It's based on the Word of God. And the Word of God is able to speak to you in every situation. Therefore, it's not about, well, you've never gone through it. Therefore, you can't talk about it. Well, you know what? The Word of God talks about it. Therefore, this is my authority. So my authority is not just my experiences or how smart I am or how great of a communicator I am. My own, only authority as a minister of God is how I bring the Word of God to you. And I pray that I will continually bring faithfully this Word to you. But here's the beautiful truth. When God speaks, hear this, there's no doubt about it. 
for every one of us who have placed ourselves under the hearing of God's word with open ears and open hearts. For all of us who are in this room, we know that we cannot doubt that God has spoken and that God is speaking. Can't doubt it. God is speaking. I'll never forget as a, a teenager, I would walk into church and I'd have to sit um, here and my father would be preaching. And as he was preaching the word of God, I'd be thinking to myself, oh, he knows. Oh, he knows. I'm busted. I, I've, I've been caught. He's using this service to call me out. I mean, it was just like the, I, I mean, the Holy Spirit of God. I'm thinking to myself, Kelly ratted me out. Kelly ratted me out. And the point is, here's the point. It was, wasn't like he knew. It was that the Holy Spirit of God was convicting me in such a powerful way. And the same thing happens to us. It's not that I know, not that I'm living at your house. It's that the Word of God is living, is active, is powerful, and it knows us. And it knows us. So the Word of God is thundering, and His voice is powerful, greater than Niagara Falls. The fifth picture, quickly, He is effectively protecting His church. So we get to verse 16, and it says that... Um, He's holding seven stars, which is the seven angels. Now, some theologians say that these angels are actually the ministers or pastors that were given to the seven churches. I love what J. Vernon McGee says. He says, as a pastor, I've been called so many things, it's good to be called an angel. Um, so I, I might go with that, but, but there are messengers that have been given to the church that Christ is even protecting them. But then it says Christ is protecting the church with the sharp two-edged sword that's coming forth from his mouth. And what we need to realize is that God's word defends his church. I think, of, I forget who it was that said, you know how you defend the Bible? The same way you defend a lion. You let it out of its cage. You don't need to defend a lion. A lion will defend itself. In the same way, we don't have to defend the word of God. The word of God defends itself. It is living, it's powerful, and the beautiful picture is that God through his word has, has chosen that by the word of Christ we will be brought forth into faith, and also by the word of Christ people will be judged for their faithlessness. Two pictures here of how Christ is protecting his church. Then, number six, he is reflecting his glory through the church. He's reflecting his glory through the church. And we see this picture in verse 16, it says that his, the face was like the sun shining and Full strength. And what John does, he gets this picture from Joshua, or excuse me, Judges chapter 5, which tells us that lo those who love God will shine forth um, the glory of God. But here in Revelation chapter 1, the Son is Christ. He is the Son. And the point for us is that Christ is shining and He's called us to reflect Him to the world around us. And in the last picture, quickly, for I can see that you are not enduring much today. Is, is this, he is transmitting his life to his church. And look at verse 18. Jesus is talking here, red words, red, red letters. And it says in verse 18, And the living one, Jesus speaking of himself, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. For Jesus was dead for a brief time, and now he is alive for all time. And because he is alive, he gives us life. Not just temporary life, but eternal life. Because he, he gives that to 
us. And we're reminded here that the real symbol of Christianity to the first century church was not a cross. The first century church would not wear crosses around their neck saying, hey, I'm a Christian. If any symbol was a symbol of the first century church, it was the empty tomb. For here's the picture. The cross tells us that Jesus died. The empty tomb tells us that Jesus lives. Now we need both. I'm not trying to downplay any of them. But Jesus, because he's alive, he's giving us life. And let me just show you something pretty amazing before we move on. There are five keys that are mentioned in the New Testament, and Jesus holds them all. Just follow with me. In Matthew 16, Jesus holds the keys to the kingdom. In Luke 11, there is the key of knowledge that Jesus has. In Revelation 1, the keys of death and Hades, Jesus holds them. In Revelation 3, the key to the throne of David is his. And in Revelation 9, there is a key to the bottomless pit that Jesus himself holds. So five keys in the New Testament, and Jesus has them all. But what does that tell us, or what does that guarantee us? There's an ancient legend that tells of a general whose army was afraid to go into battle. The soldiers were frightened because the enemy was too strong, the fortress was too high, their weapons were too mighty. Yet the king knew with all of his heart that his men could win. He just had to figure out a way to convince them. So what he told them was that he possessed a magical coin, a coin that would let them know whether they would win or lose the battle. And he said, this coin has two sides. One side is an eagle, the other side is a, is a bear. I'm going to flip it. And if it lands on the eagle, it means that you will win the battle. If it lands on the bear, it means that you will lose the battle. So he flips the coin in the air, and the soldiers get completely quiet. As it hits the ground, they, they huddle around it, and then they break out in celebration because they saw the eagle. From that, they went into battle. They defeated the enemy, an enemy that was even greater than them. And it wasn't until after the battle that the king showed them that the coin that he possessed um, was a two-sided coin. It had an eagle on both sides. Now, granted, this is a, a fictional um, story, but the truth remains the same. Assured victory, when we know that victory is coming, it empowers the army. Assured victory empowers the army. Let me say this. As we see the glory of God in the face of Christ, I pray that there is an assurance that's given to us that He is our Savior, He is a Lamb, He is a Lion, and He is Lord. This is who He is. He has won. He stands in all of His glory. Christ has given us a revelation of Himself, and it's beautiful. And then, let me give you the last truth this morning. So not only does Christ comfort His people, not only has Christ given His people a glorious revelation, the last truth is this. Christ calls His people to a gracious identification. Christ calls us to a gracious identification. So the picture is this. John sees Jesus standing in the middle of his church, identifying with his people. And the point becomes very clear. We saw last week that Christ is ever-present with us. Christ is in our midst. I don't know where you are this morning, but here's what I do know. If you're walking through difficult times today, Christ has not and will not abandon you. He will not abandon you. He will not walk out on you. 
Any trial or any tribulation that you have to walk through will not be meaningless because He has walked it already and He will walk you through it. He is with us, but then also He has an enduring purpose for us. And I love the fact when we look at the very end of this chapter, we, we can really find our purpose from looking at the life of the Apostle John. What the Apostle John does is this. First of all, he sees the glory and the beauty of Christ. He sees this picture of Christ. And then what does he do? He falls down in worship of Christ. He falls down with fear, just overcoming him. He's falling down in absolute worship. We see in verse 17, here he is falling down and Christ lays his hand on him. Oh, the touch of Christ is so comforting. And then two verses later, in verse 19, he rises up as a witness for Christ. And in that, brothers and sisters, we see our purpose. Our purpose is twofold. We must fall on our faces before Christ. We must fall on our faces in worship of Him. And as we do, then we will be able to rise up as witnesses for Christ. Maybe the, maybe the reason that many of us are not witnessing for Christ is we're not worshiping Him. Maybe, just maybe, the reason that we're not the witnesses that we should be is because we're not the worshipers that we're called to be. Maybe, just maybe, we're not taking time to behold the beauty or the glory of God in the face of, of Christ. And because of that, we're not rising up. We're not witnessing the way that we're supposed to. So the point is, we need to find ourselves... Again, in, in awe of our Savior, worshiping Him, and then rising up as witnesses for Him. And in, in case you don't know what Christ has done for you, in case just maybe, just maybe you've missed out, let me just remind you this morning what He's done for you. He's purchased you by His blood. By His blood, He has purchased you. He's given you His life. He's given you His light, by which we are called to be salt and to be light in the midst of this world. Then it doesn't stop. Then he brings us into his body by which we are the church of Christ. We're the body of Christ. And then we are called to live not for our glory, but for his. When it comes to Jesus, let me just say this today in closing. We have so much to see and we have so much to tell. We have so much to see in him. We have so much to see and then we have so much to tell. So much to tell of what Christ has done for us. Don't miss it. So here's the picture this morning. I love what Thomas Brooks says. He says this, Christ is a jewel worth more than a thousand worlds. As all know who have him, get him and get all. Miss him and miss all. Let's not miss him today. Let's not miss him today. So what I'm going to do in our closing, I'm going to just ask you to stand. And we're going to, to pray and call the musicians up. And the, the point is clear today. We need to see and behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And in doing so, I pray that we, like John, would fall down in worship of Christ. And then as we do so, then we would, in the same way, rise up as witnesses for Christ. That we would witness for him and rejoice in him and tell people what he's done for us. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you as we 
said from the beginning of our time this morning that the goal today was to look upon Christ. And that if any were lost in this room, that in looking at Christ, we would be found. If any today were weak, God, that in looking to Christ, we would find strength. If any today, God, were were in need of comfort, that today as we look to Christ, we would find that comfort. Or if any in this room today are desiring sin, living a, a life of sin, that today in looking at Christ, we would find ourselves now desiring a Savior. God, we pray today that you would meet your people right where we are. God, help us, as your word tells us in Revelation 1, to be a people who who fall at your feet and worship, for we have so much to see, so much to behold in you. And then help us, God, in the same breath after that to rise up as witnesses, for we have so much to tell. God, we have so much to tell of what you have done in our lives, how you have saved us, how you have forgiven us, how you have worked all things together for our good and for your glory. God, as we're about to sing, may we say today that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Christ alone. God, comfort your people today with that. Christ alone. Praise you, God. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.